0: Through recording, preserving, and educating, the mission of the Steamship Historical Society of America is to share the impact of engine-powered vessels, their crews, and their passengers with future generations. My name is Amy Bachari, and I'm the Education Director. And with me now is Doug Tilden, former VP of United States Lines, South America, and later CEO of Marine Terminals. He spent the last five decades in the shipping industry working his way up from being a dock clerk to serving as the top executive within a global fortune 100 corporation so doug can you tell us why ocean shipping is important to all of us
1: you know it's it's interesting because ocean shipping tends to operate in the background Uh, the only time shipping gets in the news is when something bad happens like recently the evergreen ship that got stuck in the suez canal about 18 months ago or last year when the supply chain got jammed up and there were 100 container ships sitting off the port of Los Angeles, that made front page news. But other than that, shipping tends to operate in the background. But when you look around, uh, you begin to realize how much shipping adds to our daily life. Uh, If you do an inventory of your house, you'll find that virtually all of your electronics have been on a ship at some point in time. Certainly all of your cell phones, they're all made in Asia, got here by a ship. Similar, you know, statistically uh, your furniture and uh, your appliances in the kitchen, about half of them came to the US on a ship. Almost all garments, all our clothing is made overseas and they get here uh, by ships, even into foodstuffs, You know, if you're eating grapes in the middle of winter in Massachusetts, they came from Chile on a ship. Virtually all, probably 99% of bananas get here on a ship. The company that I uh, was CEO of before I retired operated ports on the West Coast. And every year we would handle about 300,000 tons of bananas. uh, And we weren't the only one in the market. So that's that's a lot of bananas. So a shipping contributes to our way of life. Goods couldn't be as inexpensive as they are without economical and reliable shipping. And the manufacturing of these goods brings economic activity to developing countries. In, for example, Vietnam in recent years, uh, export product is about 50% of their GDP. Uh, In China, over the last 30 to 40 years, No matter what you think about China, they've lifted uh, several hundred million people out of poverty, and about a third of their economy is based on exports. So it's very important to our daily life and the economic health of the world that shipping operate uh, very seamlessly.
0: What is containerization, and why is it important for shipping?
1: You know, goods have been transported by sea for over 2,000 years. And for most of those 2,000 years, transportation of goods was done the same way. Goods in their original packaging would be placed into the hold of a ship. They were in crates, they were in cartons, barrels, amphora, uh, hogsheads of tobacco. That's called break bulk, where cargo is stacked in the hold of the ship. And there's a physical limit. You can only stack boxes of shirts so high before they start to crush each other. And that limits the size of an individual ship, how much they can stack in a ship. And that worked pretty well until after World War II. World trade really exploded at the end of World War II. Uh, Over my shoulder is a model of one of the last of the bright bulk ships. It's a US line ship, the American Challenger. We have a picture of the Challenger actually unloading some cargo in New York and individual cartons were stacked on a pallet and then hoisted using small cranes on the ship to the pier where they were stacked again and then stacked into a truck. The ability of ships to handle this cargo, as I said, was constrained by the the amount of cargo you could stack on top of each other. That ship handles about 12,000 tons of cargo. Containerization was important for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, since the cargo was broken up and put into small uh, rigid units, eventually 20-foot and 40-foot containers, you could stack it much more efficiently. You could also stack it on deck because it wouldn't be exposed to the weather. So modern container ships handle as much as, the most recent ships handle 120,000 tons of cargo. 10 times the capacity of the last of the break bulk ships. So, world trade growth would not have been possible without the uh, introduction of the container, which took place, uh, we'll talk more about the history of it, uh, starting in in the mid-1950s.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about how cargo was carried in the break bulk days?
1: Sure. Uh, This is a schematic of a break bulk ship and really uh, since the turn of the uh, 20th century, the design didn't change very much. So you can see there's five uh, holds on the ship. Uh, and each hold has decks. And I talked about how the constraint to carrying cargo was how high you could stack the cargo without crushing it in an attempt to uh, carry more cargo in this type of ship you put decks intermediate uh, those decks could be opened up to access uh, the cargo cargo was moved on and off the ship by the cranes that were on deck Uh, typically these cranes were maybe five tons ten tons usually there was one very large crane Uh, On the uh, Challenger-type vessels, it was in between hatches three and four, so that if you had something that weighed more than five tons, you could pick it up. The cargo was moved in and out of the holds of the ship uh, using a pallet, uh, which was attached to the small cranes on deck of the ship. Uh, Sometimes, depending on the type of cargo, like if it was uh, bales of cotton, we'd use uh, big nets. because it wasn't a concern about crushing the cargo, we'd move the cargo with nets, either from the ship to the dock or the dock to the ship. Another interesting part of break bulk shipping at that time, uh, because the ships uh, stayed so long in port, as I said, the New York call for the Far East service ships of US lines was there at least five days, versus uh, you know, a container ship is you know, 18 hours and it's gone. Uh, is that they took passengers. By law, the maximum number of passengers that could be on a ship was 12 without having a doctor, so that became the standard, particularly after World War II. Most general cargo ships uh, that were built in the 40s and 50s uh, had accommodations for up to 12 passengers, and it was uh, quite a, a cruise, particularly, for example, in the old War McCormick service from the U.S., uh went to Venezuela, Brazil, uh, Argentina, you were four or five days at each port, you could go to Rio, go to the beaches, go party, get back on the ship, go to Buenos Aires. Around the time that the Challengers came out, the shipping industry as a whole decided they didn't want to do that anymore. The Challengers were built with no accommodations for, for passengers. And I said container ships uh, don't have, normally have passenger accommodations. You know the crew size on a container ship has been reduced to 20 people or less. It's heavily automated, and there's just no one to take care of passengers anymore. So unfortunately, uh, it's it's died out. But it was a heck of a way to travel and stay.
0: Can you explain how cargo handling was changed by containerization?
1: In the days of bright bulk, let's follow, for example, a carton of shirts from Korea to Sears Roebuck in Chicago, uh, which was one of the major customers on that ship behind me. So the cargo would be uh, sourced at a factory, loaded to a truck, handled off the truck to a place of rest on the dock, then handled again from the dock to the hold of the ship. Then the ship sails, for example, to Los Angeles. The cargo is physically stacked on a pallet. It's hoisted out of the ship. The pallet then goes in a warehouse and it's stacked again. And then when a truck comes to pick it up, uh, it's hand stacked into the truck. If it's going to Chicago, the truck has to go to another warehouse where it's handled again and then loaded onto a rail car who takes, which takes it to Chicago and then unloads it into the CISRO Lux warehouse. So. All in all, there can be as many as nine handlings of a carton, individual carton between the manufacturer and the retail warehouse. With a container, you only handle the carton twice. You put it in the container when it's loaded at the warehouse, you take it out of the container when it gets to the retail warehouse at destination. So every time you handle a piece of cargo, it it generates expense, it generates uh, the potential for damage. Cartons get crushed. They can get wet. They get dirt and oil on them. They get lost. So the expense and the physical damage to the cargo from repetitive handling uh, gets significantly reduced with a container. On average, when you're unloading a ship like the American Challenger, depending on the weight of the cargo, like uh, White shirts, maybe we could do 10 to 12 tons per hour. When you pick up a container, you're picking up 15 to 20 tons at a single time. And uh, average production for container ships worldwide is probably 25 containers an hour. So you can do the math as what the difference in the tonnage per hour is in loading and unloading the ship. And you eliminate a lot of the physical handling to trucks and trains and warehouses in between.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how early containerization came about?
1: So there had been uh, attempts as early as the 1920s to uh, unitize cargo. One of the leaders in that was C-train lines. They they loaded in New Jersey, where they uh, developed a system using cranes that look remarkably like the container cranes of today uh, to pick up whole rail cars and put them in the hold of a ship. And then they had a pusher that pushed the rail cars on tracks in the ship uh, forward and aft. And the ship then uh, was in a a limited trade, basically to Puerto Rico. During World War II, the American military experimented with uh, crates, large crates, and uh, what was called mill vans, which are uh, small units. The turning point in uh, developing containerization uh, came in the early 1950s. A gentleman named Malcolm McLean, who had a, a very large trucking company, he had 1,200 trucks based in the Carolinas, was frustrated uh, with the slow delivery of, of import and export cargo to and from ships. He would wait six to eight hours for the uh, longshoreman to get his cargo off the ship and into his truck. And then the amount of cargo he could carry between New York and Carolina was dictated by the states that he had to drive the truck through. So maybe his truck could carry 55,000 pounds of cargo, but he could only load 42 because say Virginia had the most restrictive weight limitation. He also had to pay road taxes to every single state he crossed. And uh, the story is he was sitting on a dock in New Jersey in the early 50s and said, boy, what if I could take the uh, body of the truck off the skeletal chassis that it sits on with the wheels and the landing gear and just pick the body of the truck up and put it on a ship. And he was so so much believed in this concept that he bought a shipping company, uh, Waterman Steamship. He took one of their subsidiaries, Pan-Atlantic Line, and he founded Sealand Service, which was the first container shipping company. In 1956, the first ship to carry a, a load of containers sailed from Newark, New Jersey. That's the X from uh, Newark, New Jersey to Galveston, Texas. And that's that started the age of containerization.
0: So Malcolm McLean's shipping company basically was just within the United States. How did containerization really take off as a global phenomenon?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting story. Um, And I think one of the turning points in containerization, Mr. McLean realized that this could work in international trade lanes. But for containers to work, say, to Europe, um, a lot of things had to change. Ports had to change. They had to buy new equipment. Uh, Trucks had to change. They would no longer be using trucks with their own uh, truck bodies. They would use skeletal chassis. Warehouses had to change, railroads had to change, they had to have equipment that you could put these containers on, barges in Europe had to change, and when Malcolm developed his first containers, uh, which were 35-foot containers, they were convinced that was the right size, he invented a device to lift the containers up as well as to secure them to each other on the ship. It's called a corner casting. And uh, he and his engineers had patented the corner casting. And what I think is a brilliant move is he opened the patent up to anybody so that other companies could develop enough uh, momentum that port authorities, railroads, trucking companies, barge companies would need to change their system. His idea was very quickly adopted by other shipping
0: companies, including U.S. lines. How is it possible to actually lift a container onto a ship?
1: It's a good question because, as I said, the containers could be 20 tons. And the year on these the ships, like the American Challenger, normally is maybe 5 to 10 tons. So there's a significant problem in lifting a container onto a ship. Initially, what was done is they used construction cranes on the dock, uh, which have a much greater lifting capacity. Then the next evolution very quickly was they put small uh cranes that ran on rails on the deck of a ship. They're called deck gantries, and they can reach over the side of the ship and pick up a container. But several companies very quickly got the idea that the way to really do it efficiently was to put a a crane on the dock and lift the container onto the ship so the ship would have no cargo handling gear. Mattson adopted that very quickly, and three years after the sailing of the Ideal X. Uh, They commissioned the first container crane, dedicated container crane in the world in Alameda, California, to load containers uh, to and from Hawaii. The company that built the crane was based in Alameda called Pacific Coast Engineering, or Paseco. And very quickly, as other companies like U.S. Lines started to get into the market, uh, Paseco had a real dominance in the world market for container cranes. I, since I've been in the business for over 50 years, I do find it somewhat ironic that, uh, you know, the idea of containerization was developed in the United States. Uh, The idea for container cranes was developed in the United States. The first container crane was built in the U.S. Uh, But today uh, there are no American owned shipping companies. (laughs) There are no container cranes uh, built in the United States. 70% 70% of all container cranes in the world are built in China. I've been involved in purchasing probably around 30 of the cranes during my, my uh, lifetime in business, and they actually are very good cranes and about unfortunately about a third the expense of what that crane would cost in the U.S. The real turning point was the development of, of the container crane to pick up containers, put them on the ship.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how containerization affected workers in the ports?
1: When we were unloading uh, the American Challenger, on any individual shift, we would have about 80 to 100 longshoremen working the ship. And the ship would work day and night and four to five days a week before we completely unloaded all the cargo from the Far East and got it ready to load cargo back Uh, as the ship went back to Asia. With containers, especially in the early container ships, we would have gangs of about, longshore gangs of about 27 people. Normally you'd have two cranes working the ship in the early days, uh, and it would take about a day and a half. So you can see there was a tremendous reduction in the need for longshore labor to load and unload the ships. And this went through the whole supply chain. You didn't have people stacking and unstacking uh, cartons and all the intermediate weight ports as the car- cargo moved from origin to destination. And there was a lot of resistance initially in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, uh, because longshore jobs are uh, around the world's uh, some of the best paying jobs in industry. And you know, it was difficult on longshoremen, it's hard work um, and they did not want to lose their jobs. Uh, You know, an example is in New York, there were 31,000 longshoremen in New York at the tail end of the brake bulk era when the American Challenger was sailing. Uh, Today, there's about 5,000 longshoremen in New York operating the container cranes and the equipment to move the containers on the terminals. But New York's handling more than four times as much cargo as it did in 1970. Over a period of time, there were accommodations made for the longshoremen. To start off, no new longshoremen were hired for a long period of time. So the ranks of longshore union workers uh, declined due to attrition. There were also royalties uh, on the East Coast. There were royalties paid to longshoremen for to conversion to containers. In some parts of the world, there were bonuses paid to longshoremen. So over time, the longshore workforce around the world was reduced because of containerization.